everybody. Welcome to another episode of Mesoamerican Studies on Air. And today we have uh, Paul Guinan, who is, along with illustrator David Hahn, a producer of Aztec Empire, a historic webcomic about the conquest of Tenochtitlan. And Aztec Empire is free to read at Paul's website at bigredhair.com. Currently, the webcomic is up to nine episodes, uh, and the current episode is Cortez and his men are dealing with things in Veracruz, just to give you a sense of what's going on. Um, Aztec Empire has been nominated by both the Ringo and Eisner Awards for Best Digital Comic. And in addition to Aztec Empire, Paul is a founding member of Helioscope Studio, and is co-creator of other works such as Cargo Knots, Heartbreakers, Boilerplate, History's Mechanical Marvel, Frank Reed, Adventures in the Age of Invention, and the DC comic Kronos. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, Thank welcome. You. Thank you. Yeah. Tony, a fantastic introduction. So Paul, we wanted to get started just by giving you a few minutes to tell us a little bit about the Aztec Empire Project. Tony gave us a fantastic introduction, but we'd love for you to explain a little bit for our listeners who might not be familiar with it, what the project is. And then from there, we can talk about what sort of inspired you to work on it. Sure. Well, Aztec Empire is a uh... A graphic novel that is in its current form is a web comic, which you can read for free, as Tony mentioned, at bigredhair.com. And it is an attempt to authentically tell the story of the events of 1519, 1521, when Cortez shows up in Mexico uh, and participates in the um, ongoing Mexica Tlaxcala uh, war. And Cortez's people, uh, Tip, tip the sides on that, and they wind up um, uh, causing the fall of the Mexica and Tenochtitlan. So it's, it's covering those events, and they're really heavily mythologized. And uh, I've never really seen any decent um, movie, TV show, comic, or anything, you know, depicting these events. I mean, there have been uh, comics. You know, there's a couple of little attempts back in the 60s. There was... Um, uh, a movie made in 1947 uh, in Hollywood called The Captain from Castile. And then recently, uh, about a few years ago, there was uh, a TV show, a Spanish production that uh, they did some co that they shot in Mexico called Hernan. And, and, and all of these, all of these projects have always been Cortez centric. And, you know, I have to admit that the story I'm telling it, Cortez is one of the central characters. But I wanted to tell the story that um, the way you think uh, events happen, just that just didn't happen. I mean, uh, like, for instance, you know, one of the more cliche myths is, is that he took down the empire with 500 men, you know, things mm -hmm. like that. He had a romance with his teenage interpreter. Uh, that's BS. You know, so there's all this stuff surrounding the story, which was very frustrating for me because I've always been interested in Mexican history and uh going back years uh as as tony mentioned chronos the dc comic i was given the great privilege of co-creating a character for the dc universe and um the writer and i split the actually it was the editors the editor uh, archie goodwin had us split the character in half where he uh, he uh, uh john moore my writing partner on that 
got to choose the backstory for uh, for um, Cronus's dad, and then I got to choose the backstory for Cronus's mom. And because I was I was at that time already interested in the story, I uh, I went with that his mother is a, a noblewoman from Tenochtitlan who is taken out of time just before the Spaniards destroy the city, and uh, she gives birth to Cronus uh, in this extra dimensional city out of time. And he eventually has gets these superpowers of time traveling. So he's he's sort of like DC's Doctor Who, but okay. he uh, doesn't need a TARDIS, and uh, and he's uh, he's half Aztec. So um, so I've always been interested in the story. And, and as the events, the 500th anniversary of the events came upon us, uh, it became really frustrating that there wasn't really a you know decent visual version of this story because there's plenty of great prose histories uh, mm-hmm. on this subject. So uh, in order to tell it correctly, I had to tell it in detail, which means that uh, I, my, my first, actually my first pass on the, on the, on the, um, on the story structure was it clocked in at about a thousand pages. And I says, okay, this, I can't, I can't do this. <laughs> so I whittled it down to a mere 500. Mm-hmm. And so uh, each episode on, on the website right now is uh, 10 story pages and then five to seven illustrated endnote pages and those are included to make sure that everybody understands that what they're reading is factual or fact you know as you know as close as we can get with the subjectiveness of history I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's a whole separate argument so how, how how accurate can you be with uh, with historical subjects especially ones that are centuries you're, you know centuries old and and there's not a lot of documentation so uh so i i spent a so i started uh i launched a you know, some social media platforms for it uh, at the end of 2016 or around 2016. And for two years, I just did outreach um, uh, to uh, Mexican archaeologists and anthropologists and historians and um, academics. And and over time, I was very honored to, to have uh, them accept the work that I was doing and, and even, you know, um, become fans of it. And so, uh, so that's uh, so. It, so at this pace that I'm working on, I, I got to pick it up. But at the pace I'm working on, it, it'll be a, almost a, a decade before I com- before it's fully complete. So I'm giving myself a deadline of uh, 2030 <laughs> to finish it okay. all up. Yeah. <laughs> but what you've produced so far is it is amazing. It's mind blowing. If if no one's seen it, it is so richly detailed, so well sourced. It's, I mean, this uh, at times it feels like you know you're you're peeking into the past and actually seeing events rather than like uh, the drier syntheses you sometimes read in academic texts or the misrepresented, you know, films or or TV attempts. Like it's it's just it's amazing. I, well, I have the an advantage of of. Um not being a historian uh uh tech, you know like not having not writing a history in which you can't just say this happened that happened you have to sort of you have to you have to sort of hedge your bets you say well it, it is believed that you know we th- we think mm-hmm. that and here's a couple versions of the events here's here's one you know one person says this one person says that for me i have to decide exactly what's happening in every scene and and if there is 
some controversy about it if there is well you know that's that's your opinion or whatever I, mm -hmm. I have these end notes to let you know where I got the idea from to present that scene in that way so uh, and in some cases uh, I can have fun with it like for instance um there'll be uh, scenes upcoming that are myth mythological like for instance Cortez after this defeat of his of his army sat at this tree and wept uh, and and I've actually been to that tree in Mexico City, um, but uh, but did that really happen? Probably not. Will I show it in my comic? Absolutely, I will. Uh, yeah. But I'll have at the end notes. You know, hey, this is considered to be a myth, but I couldn't pass it up. So I have I have a sort of a you know a, a slight uh, leeway in 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 in, uh, in this project. Yeah. But again, it's very important to me. It's very important to me that it be as authentic as is possible. Mm -hmm. yeah and that's one thing that I've really loved about this project is like Tony mentioned I mean the it is it's visually stunning um and it's also very accessible I found I've used this in classes that I've taught on campus I've used excerpts when I talk about um about some of the events that lead to the arrival of the Spanish in Tenochtitlan um and one thing that that I'd really love to hear more about is what your research process looks like because you have done so much research on this and you know so much outreach working with academics with others uh who have devoted their lives to this but you've managed to take all of that information to do all of that research and then to present it in a way that's very accessible um which is something that's you know it's it's something that I'm very passionate about it's the whole purpose of this podcast right is to be able to talk about this stuff in an accessible way and so I'd love to hear a little bit more about what the process has been like for you how you go about doing the research and then translating all of those varied accounts and facts into something that is so accessible mm. well um uh, uh, one of the advantages that I have, which is actually a, a, a very lamentable thing for history, is that there's not a lot of firsthand information. There's Cortez's letters, which you can't necessarily trust because he had an agenda when he wrote them. There's the memoir of Bernal Diaz, which is extremely detailed. And this is what I'm using for my plot structure. Um, but again, there's some things that he says that are like, you know, you have to take it with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. And then uh, and then there's a few little documentations here and there from other conquistadors. Uh, often often this information came out at, 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 a, at, a, at a trial uh, when someone was trying to sue Cortez because he didn't, <laughs> he, he promised them stuff and he wasn't able to deliver and he got sued. And so there's this fun little testimonial stuff. Um, and that's kind of it on the Spanish side. Then the next amount of material we have is from the colonial era. And it's reconstruction. It's not like the sad thing. And I learned this only while doing the research. There is no Mexica version of events. It, they, when the Spaniards destroyed Tenochtitlan, Tenochtitlan had multiple libraries. Every single piece of text was destroyed. There was a few things that uh, sur that survived. A couple little things that survived, but not anything that describes the events of 15, 19, 15, 21. Usually the, what, what, what has survived has been stuff about the history of kings or the roles of gods. And so uh, so I when I went to go look at what what how can I approach the Mexica side of this? Of course, the first thing that that uh, when you're when you're doing work like this, the first thing that you stumble across is uh, Miguel Portilla's 
Broken Spears. Mm -hmm. And so I'm reading that and I'm realizing, well, this is, there's something behind this. And I found out that Broken Spears is actually an adaptation of book 12 of the Florentine Codex. Mm-hmm. and so I went and looked at that and I saw oh this is a, even a deeper cut there's some more information here that Portia sort of glosses over and in that text though it's a colonial text so and so the informants that were writing it weren't Mexica they were Texcoco and so and Texcoco had turned on the Mexica late in the scheme of things so although the information about their daily lives may be accurate. Information about the attitude that Moctezuma had uh, when all these events were going down, about how he was fearful and uh, indecisive. Well, that didn't that didn't make sense because the whole way that you even become ruler of the Aztec Empire is by not being fearful or indecisive. You know, you're a pretty forceful personality. So, so I, so I, I, I then, after looking at those primary sources, I then started looking at the best material I could find that is, was interpreting that. And of course, the first person you stumble across is Matthew Restall. I mean, his seven, the seven yeah. misses Spanish conquest. And then uh, uh, people like Camilla Townsend. And and then this, then this was this was before Restall had put out when Montezuma met Cortez and before. Townsend put out the fifth son when they put out those books oh my goodness my you know, like all of a sudden yeah. my brain exploded there was all kinds of great new information there mm-hmm. um but up until that time it was uh it, it, with the exception of rest on and, and, and Townsend the only real information I could find that would help me with the details of the story uh were in this 1990s book by Hugh Thomas called Conquest and again mm-hmm. it's it's Spanish-centric it's Cortez-centric and he, he, but he, he spent a lot of time researching the players in, in the, in the, so I was able to find out all this information that's just not in any other history books that, that is buried in a footnote at the end of, you know, Thomas's 900 page tome. So, you know, so it's, so I find these little gems in, in footnotes and, in, in, in legal discussion. And I, and I just sort of start making a, not a spreadsheet technically, but I start making all these notes about where I can find the information that I need for any given thing. Mm-hmm. Now, thankfully, um, visually, we have all kinds of uh, archaeological stuff that I can look at. Uh, we have um, codices that describe, you know, what kind of clothes were worn and, uh, you know, the ranks and things like that. Um, so the visual stuff was not that hard to find. Uh, and so that's what's so frustrating about when, when people go to depict uh, the sculpture is that it's, it's right there. There's this thing called the Mendoza Codex. You can look at it's right there. These, that, that's what a general looks like. That's what a Connor looks like. This is what a priest looks like. And so, uh, so but, you know, it, 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 does, it does require a little bit of obsession, uh, obsessiveness uh, to, to actually do those deep dives. But for me, I love research. I mean, it's kind of, um, it's one of my hobbies. I actually am entertained by, by like, you know, it's sort of like a, uh, like a detective work, investigative, yeah. you find out these clues and then the clues lead you to that. And then you get excited at what you find. And so, uh, so that's, yeah, that's the, and that's the, the basic uh, of the research process. And then one of the advantages of, of doing it as a webcomic online, posting pages is that uh, people will point out, oh, 
you got this detail wrong or that detail wrong. Mm -hmm. And then I, then I get very excited. It's, I, I don't think of, of I don't get angry. Uh, like, how come I miss that? Or, or how, you know, who is he to tell me this? They'll send me the, the information and I'll go and make uh, the corrections. In fact, mm -hmm. I, I have to, uh, one of my next things I have to do is uh, I have to correct the, the trim design on, on, on the cloaks of this group called the Council of Four, these Montezuma advisors. Oh, then that's another thing. That's, I'm, I'm, okay, now you've got me. Now, <laughs> we've been, found up, the I'm, sweet I'm spot. Going. Yeah. Is, um, one of the one of the things that that I was able to find, which I'm surprised just doesn't show up in history books, is these background characters that aren't really supposed to be background characters. Like in Thomas's book, 900 pages, every little detail about every meeting that Cortez with all of his captains, and you name all the captains. But he doesn't have that kind of detail for the for the Mexico side of it. Like we never hear about anybody but the rulers of the Triple Alliance. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe you know we get a little information about Tlaxcala and who ruled them and why they joined or why they allowed the Spaniards to join there more. Um, but we never hear about Montezuma's Council of Four, and they're named in the Florentine Codex. I got their names pretty easily. And, and it explains who they are and what they did. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden I have a cast of characters um, that I can use to, 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 to describe, you know, as you would in a movie or TV show, to have these characters, hopefully it's not expository dialogue. Hopefully the dialogue is, you know, is entertaining and it's not just a person explaining what's going on. And so, um, so that, that is a very exciting thing to be able to, to, um, to use these, these characters which have not, which we have not seen or heard from before in, in any of these prose histories. Another thing that Thomas revealed in one of his books uh, is just, it's just an encyclopedia. It's called Who's Who of the Conquistadors. And it's nothing but just entries and entries and entries of all these people. In the back of the book is a section on the women who, who, who uh, were part of the expedition. And that's never mentioned. Yeah. And so it turns out that the Cortez expedition had like at least a dozen women. And a couple of them were identified by uh, Thomas as being uh, mistresses of Cortez. So then, as soon as you as soon as you think about that, as soon as as soon as you realize that, then you and you realize that uh, uh, that this romance between his interpreters, teenager interpreter, is it like that. Then that's even confirmed to me that it's bullshit. That uh, that uh, that he he was, it was more important for him to please his captains and bribe them constantly with, you know, with promises of gold or whatever. And part of the tribute system uh, from the, from the locals was giving women uh, 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 pretty much sex slaves. Mm -hmm. So he could afford to just, he, like Malinche wasn't a, wasn't a big deal to him until she started to show off her, her linguistic skills. Yeah. And so for him, I like the, the the one time that we we hear about okay well didn't he have a daughter with her well that was like a year or two after Tenochtitlan fell and it was while she was living in his house for a couple of months and he was you know he's you know power corrupts and she was mm -hmm. she was probably raped yeah and he didn't even acknowledge the child so so you know you, you start to put together all of this stuff that ties in you know like you, you sort of have this idea well what if it's like this and then you see these you see these connections and it kind of confirms your suspicions. I mean, some of it, I, I guess, you know, could be argued. Well, it's circumstantial, or uh, but you know, that's part of my part of my job as a storyteller is to interpret these events, and then to explain, you know, why why I came up with that. Mm -hmm. And like some other stuff that I'm 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 uh, happy to have to bring out to the light is um, 
And as I work on these individual scenes, I'll research the, the, the every specific of that scene. And so I wanted a sequence where Montezuma is meditating on, uh, on, this, on this event about people showing up. And uh, so I had heard about his, this thing he, he had called the Black House, which was a room in his palace, which was uh, windowless. And he would go down there and he would, you know, do some hallucinogenics, mild amount, you know, microdosing, we would call it thing, <laughs> and, um, and contemplate, you know, these matters. And so I was thinking, okay, well, what, what would that look like? And it's just, you know, a black room. And so, well, you know, that's kind of boring. How am I going to, that's kind of, I don't know. So I looked up the materials of what the room was made out of. So it was basalt. And I looked up basalts and a lot of them, most of them have, you know, these little flecks, these little uh, flecks in them. And so I realized, holy moly, I, if you, you know, a nice smooth surface and you put this all around and you have candlelight, you have a star field going on and I was like what i never but I've never read any paper about that I've never read any description that that's the case that that was what happened but again it's like as a storyteller I just I'm putting two and two together I'm going wait a minute it's a black room but it's got these black stones with specs in them that means he's trying to get in touch with the cosmos you know to literally be out there in the in the stars mm -hmm. and uh so so i'll find these little things that uh that are very exciting to me because because i haven't seen them show up in other in other media yeah not even yeah. not even the prose, not even the prose histories but we're still you know we're still learning stuff every day i mean it's amazing just in the last 20 years how 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 much information has come come forth from new translations new interpretations of old texts archaeological finds mm -hmm. it's uh it's striking so so in, in a way even though i've been fascinated with the story since the 90s since chronos uh i'm happy that i didn't really undertake it in a serious way until recently until all of this you know to take advantage of all this new information that we that we have today so yeah well just last week catherine and i were discussing um uh a cache that was found at the base of the Templo Mayor that had Mescala style figurines, you know, and it's like, I wouldn't have expected that in downtown Tenochtitlan, but they went out of their way to collect them and offer, you know, have them as an offering. And it just like adds that much more depth to their culture that we didn't know beforehand. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, speaking of downtown Tenochtitlan, the, I, the idea of Tenochtitlan being like the center, well, literally the center of their cosmos, the center of the universe, the center of their trade, culture, everything like that. So I imagine it being cosmopolitan. I imagine it having all kinds of cultures represented there in, in whatever forms and sculpture and murals. And, and the like, for instance, the only the only decent amount of Mexica imagery, muralism is in the House of Eagles. There's a, there's a, a, a nice amount of, of, of wall decoration and um, the, the, those bench sculptures are so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And so um, so I was able to, you know, to look at uh, archeological records and recreate that place. Uh, uh, I took a couple little artistic liberties with it, um, um, but, uh, but I'm, I was very proud of that. And, and then, but for other scenes, like for like uh, this palace of one of the Council of Four, um, I used uh, Teotihuacan decoration mm -hmm. um, because they loved Teotihuacan. They, they, it influenced their own artwork. 
And, you know, like I, I sometimes describe the, the two cultures as being, you know, like uh, having a relationship like uh, Greece and Rome. Mm -hmm. or, you know, the Romans took all this stuff from the Greeks because they liked the look of it. So, yeah, I want to have this on my wall. Um, so, so that's, that's, that's sort of interesting to do to, um, to sort of create proxies for these, for this, for these images, like, uh, when coming up, when I'm going to depict Tlaxcala, I'm going to use these, uh, Kalishka, these, uh, these murals that predate Tlaxcala, but they're in the style of that culture in that area. So I will use them as proxies for wall for muralism in Tlaxcala. And every once in a while, somebody points to that out. He goes, hey, well, you know, that isn't a Mexican mural. That's a Teotihuacan mural. <laughs> so then I, I just have to say, well, what do you got? You know, like, well, mm -hmm. just send me something that you think would work better. And of course, it doesn't exist. So Right. But I, but I think, you know, th this is something that Tony and I have talked about before is that the, those inclusions are there, you know, that there, there's a logical line behind them, right? There's, there's a rationale for why you're including things. And this is something that I think um, is one of the largest criticisms of, of other representations that we've seen, visual representations of Mesoamerica um, and Tenochtitlan in particular, uh, is that very frequently when there's a gap to be filled, the gap is filled by something that is maybe aesthetically interesting, but there's not really a logical connection for it. Um, so, you know, we get, I mean, The Road to El Dorado, right? A completely fictional film that's based off of a somewhat historical story. Um, they pulled a mishmash from everywhere across all of the Americas, um, aesthetically beautiful, historically terribly inaccurate. Mm -hmm. um, but that's that's what I I, I have found uh, that I appreciate a lot in in this in this web comic is that you have followed a very logical line and you followed what we have evidence for, right? Like you said, we know that that the Mexica were going to Teotihuacan, that they were taking things from there, both physically and intellectually, right? Um, and so I think it creates a very cohesive visual uh, that that I, I think is is more impactful. I, I uh, visited Teotihuacan uh, uh, right before the lockdown right before the pandemic began and um i i was really quite startled because i had depicted this palace as i was just mentioning using teotihuacan design and i needed um, a little pattern for the columns mm -hmm. and uh there's this gorgeous teotihuacan pot that has these little flower little flower designs they're just oh, stunning mm -hmm. and so uh so i appropriated those took took that uh, uh and put him on the uh column and it looked great i was very pleased and then i actually visited the site and i stumbled across a column with those designs carved on it and i just i could not believe what i was looking at i just it just blew me away and and i was i the idea that i was that i could put myself in in that headspace you know the design the designer's headspace um and unconsciously come up with exactly what they had done yeah. uh, so i wasn't imagining it i was imagining it and then i saw that no it's somehow i had a psychic vision <laughs> about it so like yeah you immerse yourself in a particular thing long enough you start to you know when people you know describe things you know i was i was doing that so often i was starting to dream about it you know mm -hmm. it's like it's like that kind of a thing you start to uh you start to uh 
come to understand the approach that should be taken to fill in to fill in these little gaps mm -hmm. i mean it's like the in the in the movie uh the jurassic park when they talk about that the gaps in the dna they, they put frog dna in mm -hmm. there and fill a little thing on it and it works you know <laughs> yeah yeah and i think it's you know one of the huge advantages of the medium that you've chosen right is as you've said if there are any things that are you know very clearly disproven or anything you know that 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 you recognize later that you want to change it's not terribly difficult to do it i'm sure it's terribly inconvenient but but not impossible right yeah i mean there's a certain yeah at, at a certain point you know i have to uh stop you know fiddling around with the and re-growing yeah. things and just just keep moving moving forward it's it, it uh there may be uh really sharp-eyed readers may notice a progression in the accuracy of a certain you know item or piece of clothing or whatever that wasn't drawn exactly right in the early part. now it's mm -hmm. looks look perfect uh -huh. <laughs> the work in progress over time. Mm -hmm. well I, one of the things up until now uh the material i've used to depict events i would say up through the conflict with Tlaxcala it's everybody's pretty much on the same page you know like the florentine codex and and diaz's memoirs and like it's all i mean there's some details you know that that um that can get confusing like for instance i had to really sit down and work out a very detailed uh uh chart of what day cortez arrives what day he gets off the boat which people meet him first who meets him second when that famous tribute with the green fan and the big gold and silver disc when that happened mm -hmm. um so uh because because the florentine codex um conflates uh events mm -hmm. and it's interesting that diaz provides a more detailed template so that you can still use the florentine codex information but now instead of on friday it was on saturday that kind of that kind of thing mm -hmm. but uh but once we once we get to Tlaxcala specifically once we the Spaniards and the Tlaxcala starts moving towards Cholula then you'll see my series really take a turn away from the traditional narrative because because that's when that's when a lot of a lot of uh speculation about for instance what happened uh, with the massacre of Cholula mm. uh it's the Diaz and Cortez obviously uh described that it's it was a trap by the Mexica and then they and the Mexica somehow I don't know how they did this but somehow they camped out thousands of warriors on the outskirts of Cholula ready to go in and take them out and Diaz describes European style traps like like uh, mm -hmm. trenches with spikes for horses that mm -hmm. didn't exist that was a European tactic mm -hmm. so there's these funny little you know strange little things it's like well you know Cholula is very much out of the way you know like if you want to go from Flash Gala to Nochilan there's a much more direct route so so there's all kinds of suspicion surrounding that and the only way I could figure it out is is that it would it would the Flash Gala didn't trust Cortez so this was their deal this was their way to prove that what Cortez his what his goals were were in fact his his actual goals because he said that you know he wanted to to you know to eliminate the Mexica as a as a as a force you know in, in America so so for me it's pretty obvious that um, okay well if you want to do that then this is what's you know uh, then Cholula had 
Tlaxcala had just lost Cholula as a city state the year before. And so, so they said to Cortez, or in, in my version, they say to Cortez, okay, look, help us retake Cholula. And when you do that, because it's Mexica, Montezuma is not going to be your friend anymore. Um, uh, he's he's, he's going to be, you know, because this is their allies. And so this is a way for Tlaxcala to prove the uh, commitment that Cortez has. And, uh, and, and, and so that's the take I have. Uh, the other, other takes, like obviously, the, like we, we talked about this, about how Lynche was not romantic with Cortez. And then once we get to uh, uh, the uh, actually being in Tenochtitlan, there's this really, and this is going to be one of my most difficult challenges. There's a different debate. There's debate about when and how Moctezuma was arrested and how many months he spent in mm. under a Spanish supervision. Right. I just I just can't accept the fact that that uh, 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 Tenochtitlan, this big you know powerful city state, would just allow its leader to be captured and held in the in, in the Spanish and the, and that business went on as usual. You know, Spaniards could still go to the market and and Montezuma still you know got you know still had receptions you know from from visitors and. And it's, it doesn't make any sense. So, so my my uh, thing about that is, is that he's arrested months later, mm. not not too long before Cortez has to go confront Navarez. Mm -hmm. So, so, so like, so things like that, the Cholula thing, the the like the death of Montezuma. I, I believe he was killed by Spaniards. He wasn't killed by a stone. In fact, logistically, if you look at the way um, palaces are laid out. There's there isn't a roof right in front of the entrance to the you know it's it's usually some kind of gate. There's a garden, you know, mm -hmm. things are set back. So like the idea of like him addressing an audience is like how far away from were they? I mean, I suppose yeah. they could have used you know some you know whatever um, slings or whatever to to, to get mm -hmm. those stones that far. But uh, I don't think that that was a, a deal. So so there'll be that there'll be those kinds of choices that I'll be making that are gonna. They're gonna uh, stir stir up some stir some stuff up. So yeah, we'll see. yeah. There's the, the definitely yeah. You're coming up on a lot of the yeah a lot of the points that I feel are still generally sticky. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, even even the when uh, Alvarado's massacre of the during the festival, uh, mm -hmm. even that is, I mean, he Alvarado through the through the course of events had been admonished by Cortez multiple times for, for, um, for being too violent with the locals. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't think that by that time he would have taken the initiative to do that. I think that there was mm -hmm. other, other players involved. And, and so I'm looking into now the idea of that uh, Alvarado's brother-in-law at that time was the Prince of Tlaxcala. So uh, I think that uh, I think that the the Tlaxcala prince may have been the uh, instigator of that. I mean, it was all, obviously uh, he he baited Alvarado in, into doing that. Mm -hmm. So I mean, it's like it's not that I'm gonna take Alvarado off the hook or anything like that. Yeah. But uh, but that's gonna also be controversial because then then that gets into the idea of you know of native on native violence or whatever you know where it's where it's like i'm it, it may come off as as excusing the spaniards on some level but don't worry about that i'm not gonna not gonna excuse yeah. any of the spaniards <laughs> actions 
So um, you visited Teotihuacan. Are you going to visit Cholula or have you visited Cholula? I have not. That's not my, that's my next trip. And I'm not sure when that will happen because uh, we have a little pandemic still going on. Um, but, uh, but I was able to visit uh, Loco, uh yeah. site. I was uh, obviously Templo Mayor, that, uh, that site. And uh, so, yeah, I'd like to get to uh, Cholula uh, if I can. And even and even though it's not part of my story, I would I would love to visit a few little sites in the Yucatan. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I'm and I and I'll probably take that damned train. Uh, <laughs> I feel really bad for like the oh, that project. I mean, it means well, and I'm sure you know, like it'll there'll be advantages to it. But at what price? Hearing all these horrible stories about these archaeological sites being destroyed by and senouts, you know, the mm-hmm. being destroyed by the construction. Ugh. And I have a biologist friend, and she pointed out the environmental impact as well, like the destruction yeah. of biomes. Yeah. Um, but no, I just I just wanted to say, um, way back in undergrad, I I did do a semester at UDLAP, the Universidad de las Americas Puebla. So I got to see the Pyramid of Cholula. I got to be around town. It's worth visiting, even though oh, yeah. it's overgrown and covered in grass. Unfortunately, the year I went, uh, they had closed the tunnels, so I couldn't see oh, right. the murals. But just a little insider information, the Convento de San Gabriel Arcangel, which is northwest of the pyramid, was the location of the post-classic colonial or post-classic early like conquest mm-hmm. location uh, for that pyramid that they deconstructed to make the convent. And if you go along the back of, of the, the convent, you can actually see some of the, the pre-Columbian like carved stones in the walls of the church. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay. Yeah, I saw that in the church in Tlaloco, they have uh, a couple stones there. One is clearly a Tlaloc stone that mm-hmm. they just they just put in there as the, I think it's, you know, just a symbol of like, ha ha, you know, you are just a stone in our church now, pal. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, and like, like, for instance, I only recently learned that uh, when the Spaniards showed up there, that uh the the main temple had already started to grow over that 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 mm-hmm. uh, they weren't it was such it was of such scale that they that they couldn't they couldn't maintain it so <laughs> yeah. I, I and i didn't realize that i was you know uh i, I thought you know oh man it's going to be cool to draw this the largest i think it's the largest pyramid on the planet yeah by, by volume Giza or whatever yeah and so but but now i'm now i have to really sit down with some people and and uh, work out exactly mm-hmm. what parts were grown over what parts were yeah. were maintained yeah, I, I think it was the whole thing. I think it was abandoned at the end of the classic mm-hmm. um, because Kakashtla moved in to the to the north mm-hmm. and started raiding Cholula. And so the Cholulans migrated to a hilltop settlement that's nearby. And then it wasn't until like the late post classic that they moved back down because Kakashla was defeated or or no longer powerful. Mm-hmm. But um there's there's I love learning about Cholula, but it's overlooked. There's few scholars that that work in the area. It is the West Mexico of Central Mexico. <laughs> um because I was, I was I was telling Katie the other week, you know, 
we talk about central Mexico and the Yucatan and the connection and everyone forgets about Cholula, which is along the way. And it's like, what, you're just going to ignore one of the largest <laughs> centers. And so it's a bit frustrating and it's just, yeah, it's, it's yeah. The, the bias of, of scholarly work and scholarly interest and, mm-hmm. you know, but if you can visit, I do recommend. Oh yeah, absolutely. 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 Well, yeah, it's going to be interesting because one of the things I wanted to do with this series is sort of ramp it up as as we as we uh as we go along so you know you see you see uh tabasco or or, or uh, is it i think it's tabasco um Potanchan. Mm-hmm. and it's you know it's impressive it's got some buildings and, and, the, and the spaniards are like ooh, nice this is nicer than anything we've seen in cuba and then they go to sempuala which is even bigger and then they wind up in flashcala which is has it's kind of spread out it doesn't have a central downtown thing going on it's kind of a, it, it reflects its kind of republic kind of uh governance uh where there is no unifying thing and and so that'll be interesting in that but once we get to Cholula again massive city mm-hmm. so I'm trying to figure out a way to to make sure that when we finally get to Tenochtitlan that's the big one you know like and and, and it's 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 a so it's because uh, Cholula was rivaling the scale of of Tenochtitlan almost, and so uh, but I don't want to uh, I don't want to overplay Cholula before we get to you know the dessert, which is you know right. Tenochtitlan <laughs> itself. But so. it, it'll be fun. It'll you know because Cholula was the site of um, the Mixtecs, like to become rulers, they had to they had to make a pilgrimage to Cholula and then get their septum pierced with a turquoise uh bead you know Mm -hmm. so it's a whole set of different like influences where yes it's central mexico and there's central mexican influences but now now you can bring in a little mishtec you know a little zapotec and and give it its own little flavor where yes it's big but it's also like different and it's also like unique and and not something People yeah, one of the actually the, the, you're mentioning the symptom reminds me that one of the one of the artistic licenses I'm taking with this series is I'm not depicting the extent of the piercings and mm-hmm. tattooings, pierce uh, body modification stuff, either cranial or the scarification things, because uh, it's 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 there's just it's so visually overloaded as it is that to like get in, get into the, into the details of that, um, I think is, would just be a little too much. So, so, so my characters tend not to have as much stuff going on on their faces as they probably would have in real life. Mm -hmm. And also I didn't want to fall into this visual cliche of, um, you know, Indians with all kinds of stuff all over their faces. You know, I, that, that was a, that was another sort of uh, consideration. Like, for instance, uh, we're now coming up on the sequences uh, with the Totonac, and the Totonac uh, wore a thing here that actually they described it as pulling down the lip. So I, you know, it, so in order to draw that, and like it wouldn't it wouldn't look right in a drawing. Same thing with like when we were with the Maya uh, in the first few episodes no cranial stuff mm-hmm. either that would that would, you know like for for readers not familiar with that um that would just look like bad drawing like did they get that mm-hmm. right or are they because mm-hmm. because it would require a whole 
it, too much. Like my, I have enough end notes as it is. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so there are little things like that, which, uh, which I'm fully aware of that, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, can't, um, I mean, this, and, and it kind of, kind of gives me new appreciation for some of the historical inaccuracies I see sometimes in Hollywood movies. It's like, oh, they didn't get that right, but I understand why they didn't, you know, it wasn't working for their drama. Like one of my favorite examples is in the, in this movie, The Patriot, this Mel Gibson film, not that great a movie, but uh, the villains are uh, the Green Dragoons, a unit of the British military, and they wore green. But you can't do a revolutionary movie where the British are wearing green. It's just like they have to be, they have to have red coats. So what they did is they compromised by getting them green collars and, and little wrist things. To, so, so the filmmakers, you know, for, for the history buffs out there, the filmmakers were signaling to them, look, we know it's it's the green dragoons, but come on, give us a break. We got to wear them. We got to have the red. <laughs> so, uh, so, so now I'm starting to run into those kinds of choices. It's like, oh, I it really should look like this, but maybe if I sort of hint at it instead of fully showing it. Mm-hmm. So I I know that we we have a couple questions that are uh, sort of taking us away from from this main project, but before we jump into those, I wanted to ask. Uh, two. It's a two-part question. We've talked a lot about about some of the challenges that you've come up against. So I'd really love to know what has been for you the greatest challenge in the whole project, and what has been on the opposite side of that the greatest joy or the greatest satisfaction that you've found in the project. So the highs and the lows. Um, I would, I would, I would say what I was touching on at the beginning of this conversation, which was uh realizing that i am not castilian i'm not nawa you know i'm 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 a i'm an outsider and uh so that so my greatest challenge was having the mexican community accept my work and then some of my greatest joys are are when i went down to Mexico City and all those relationships that I made with all these people. And, and it was like every single day I would have lunch with this guy, dinner with that person. And and the and the reception that I got was just it was brought me a lot of joy. And then and and physically being there, like after researching for years, and you and you and you're and you're all of a sudden standing uh, you know, in the House of Eagles. And it's just like, wow, it's just it's just mind blowing. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, and, and then just fun, just fun stuff like, uh, you know, getting some of the crankiest historians and, um, and, and some of the most iconoclastic uh, researchers to, you know, to get on board with what I'm doing. Because mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's a, I met with a few, you know, in, in, in Mexico City, and, and there's a, it, it was just, it was really entertaining to sort of, be sort of friendly in, in a friendly way, grilled about you know my my work. It was you know, in, a, in a you know in a very positive way, but it's like mm-hmm. okay now where are you, where are you getting this information from? And then I would say you know where I get it from. They go okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that, and I love that. Yeah, with with so much of these projects, it comes down to the relationships that we that we build with each other, right? And I think that that's just I mean, yeah, it's it's so fantastic for me to see how often this research into topics that are hundreds, if not thousands of years old, um, end up bringing us, bringing us together. So I think that's, yeah, I, I love that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And I mean, frankly, I mean, one of the main things, I mean, I've always, again, I've always been a fan of uh, history and uh, Mexican history in particular, but beyond my interest in history and Mexican culture, um, I'm also uh, fascinated with science fiction. I'm a big Star Trek fan. And probably the core of this story for me is it's how unique it is in human history that they're, you know, as you, as we all know, Europe and Africa and Asia, they're all on one side of the planet, America's on the other side of the planet. And then very late in the game, very late in the scheme of things, you know, 15th century is pretty late. Uh, they, they connect and, uh, you know, it's a great, great tragedy, of course, but uh, it's just fascinating because it's as close as we get to an alien first contact story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the spect- spectacular visuals of Mesoamerica. So, so for me, this is as much of a science fiction kind of story as it is, you know, history, real history. So that's uh, that's another thing that that was really drawn to, and and again, it surprises me that uh, that no one has tried to undertake it in pop culture. I mean, there was there was an attempt. Spielberg tried to do a miniseries uh, with Javier Bardem as Cortez, and mm-hmm. uh, Tenoch Huerta as uh, Moctezuma, mm-hmm. but it was shut down by COVID, and uh, which actually reminds me of another funny story. So. This project wouldn't be what it is without the great talent of David Hahn, my longtime friend. And uh, he's, I've known him forever. And he was, I mean, I just can't get over the fact that he's willing to, you know, commit a decade to this project the way, I mean, he's doing other things. He does other projects. Um, But so he designs all the, uh, all the characters. Hmm. and he tends, he, 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 he likes everything to be beautiful. So pretty much all the characters are all good looking. And uh, there's not, you know, some of the body types, you know, that could be more varied or whatever, but I, you know, I let him do his thing. And so he designed uh, Montezuma, Moctezuma, and it coincidentally looked like uh, Tanach Huerta, mm-hmm. just by sheer coincidence. And so when he was cast by Spielberg to be in this film, uh, it's a series Mexica, I was like, oh my gosh, look, look at this. My, <laughs> my friend David Hahn, is, he has psychic powers. Um, and then... That, that that project folded yeah Come to a couple years later the actors hired to play namor and uh, or, or as he says namor mm-hmm. in, uh, in a major marvel universe movie and so it's like <laughs> i was just like wow that was that was just a really fun fun coincidence so it turns out that our comic book has uh tenoch tenoch as it's uh, as its lead and uh <laughs> and this time around we don't have to worry about you know like uh is it purely coincidental any likeness is purely coincidental because mm-hmm. in fact we did just make it, it about our head and it is purely coincidental mm-hmm. the entire project <laughs> powered by psychic powers yes exactly <laughs> well speaking of like character creation and and design um like what what are your influences like in in making the web comic look the way it is like you know, because because no comic has the same style. You know, there are DC comics that look very distinct from from other series in the D in the DC universe. Same right. with Marvel. Mm-hmm. Um, and is this like part of a 
a, a deeper rooted design? Were you like, you know, sketching characters and, and stuff like this, like from childhood? Or is this like something you developed uh, over well, time? Have, like my, uh, my style is not too far away from David's. It's, uh, I, he has a, a little bit more of a sophisticated uh, line quality than I do. And uh, when I started this project, I realized this is such an undertaking. I'm going to be spending so much time doing research and writing that I needed, you know, a, a, a someone to come in and help me with the drawing. So what I do, the process is, is that I, I uh, take a piece of typing paper, Ticonderoga number two yellow pencil, <laughs> and I do layouts. I do sketches of everything. And they look like elaborate stick figure drawing. And then I send it to David and David does the uh, final, the pencil and mm -hmm. ink version. And then he sends it back to me. And then uh, I have a collaborator. Uh, I started coloring it. The first five issues, our first five episodes, I colored myself. But um, now I brought in a guy from Mexico City, Omar, uh, Omar Estevez. And he's doing the first pass. And then I go in and I do, um, you know, make whatever little corrections I feel is necessary. And then I add the textile designs and the clothing and the mural designs on the walls. And uh, you can see that on our website, there's an art process page and you can see that mm -hmm. uh, quite clearly. And so, but the approach I was taking is I wanted to, um, I, it's, it, I grew up on widescreen historical epic things, you know, like Lawrence Arabia and all these, mm -hmm. all these things that were in which there was a really fantastic horizontal compositions like mm -hmm. Serge Dion, Spaghetti Westerns and things like this, landscapes. And I knew that the that the material here would be mostly, you know, these spectacular landscapes, armies, you know, reception committees, palaces. So everything had this horizontal kind of quality to it. So instead of going with portrait, I went with a landscape orientation. And this is, can be annoying for like publishers or book collectors because, you know, it sort of sticks out of the shelf in a weird way. Um, but it was really important for me to, to have that have that kind of cinemascope quality and then uh because of the complexity of the of everything you know from spanish clothing to you know the textile patterns of the aztecs to i mean all you know it's just it's everything is very visually dense i decided to go with a, a stripped down style and well david david's own style he, he it's all what what you would call uh, i would the colloquial way to describe is like a coloring book illustration style where it's all open line and mm -hmm. uh, he doesn't do like cross hatching there's not a lot of strong lighting stuff going on so following with that i used a very simple palette structure i mean so i'm using all kinds of colors but there's a, there's a highlight middle ground and shadow and it's all cuts there's no blend in it mm -hmm. so this keeps it this look, makes it look kind of like cell animation like a classic saturday morning cartoon kind of thing mm -hmm. and and then it, and, it, and that allowed me also to make everything bright because i didn't want it to be you know have this kind of mood i didn't want it to be moody and i i mean like if you've, if you've ever seen any too many movies these days are all you know if it takes place in the past it's sepia tone or, or, mm -hmm. or like that blue like a like game of thrones it's all like everything's blue Mm -hmm. or, or like and, and it's and it's depressing to see that even but like in some science fiction films like this um these dune movies very drab like there's where's the, where's the color so we don't have color in the past we don't have color in the future anyway <laughs> it's it, it so 
So I went with this thing where it has this like just an exp like you're what like you're looking at a Sunday.
something that will that will bring this project a lot of longevity i think mm -hmm. thanks my secret uh my secret motive is that uh when this thing gets printed i'm invited to european comic book conventions i, want, I want free i want free trips to europe for <laughs> <laughs> There we we've we've reached the heart of the motivation. That's it. There it is. It's all been revealed. Secrets revealed. Yep. Well, is there anything that you wanted to share that we haven't touched on yet? I just want to give shout outs to uh to my peep my peeps. So mm -hmm. David Hahn again, just my best friend and collaborator apparently for life. And <laughs> uh and my wife. right now 